So as I mentioned last time, there were some issues with the revamping and reconstruction of works. Xenosaga Episode 1 did reasonably well. Xenosaga Episode 2 was greenlit almost immediately, and they had plenty of financial backing and critical backing, basically, in order to get the game made. No problems there. Then they started running into some other issues. I mentioned before that Takahashi basically removed himself from the position of power uh, in terms of actually running Xenosaga Episode 2 and brought in a new group of people. Then Xenosaga 2 came out. Um, this was also uh, the first one that was released in Europe, consequently. Sorry about that, Europeans. <sighs> I'm not willing to say this is a bad game. I admit I don't have fond memories of it, and I will probably never play it again uh, going forward. But it's hard to put an exact finger on what bothers me about it, so I'm going to do my best here. because And the reason I'm doing this now in the prelude part is because it has to do partially with gameplay and my theory as to what happened. I'm not sure 100%. We know they switched around developers. We know they kind of rejiggered a lot of the plot. We know they weren't really certain where they were going with certain aspects of the story. Certain entire plot threads were just completely cut off and would never be adjusted again. There's an entire scene in this game where they basically just narrate what's happening to you rather than actually having playable gameplay. I mean, issues, right? My theory is that what happened is the original development team, the writers predominantly, sat down and said, this is what we want. Now, we always intended for mech combat to be a bigger thing going forward. If you remember, uh, oh god, I can't think of his name, the Purple Testament's uh, ES is actually shown in the first game. So there's clearly some de demonstration of the fact that they were going to go in the direction of having the ESs and having ES combat in the future. This also makes sense if you remember the fact that Xenogears was originally episode 5 of this arc. So having the big mecha as part of the playable experience, I think we could say with high certainty that was something that was intended. So, here's a rough outline of where I wanted to go with the story, and where the story will go, and here's a rough outline of what I want you to do with the gameplay. But the rest of this I want to be on you. And this is pure imp impressions, but every interview I've read and seen of this gentleman has been of what I would call an idealist. Someone who really does believe in the idea of putting forth his best and encouraging others to do the best they can and produce best work they can, even if they make a couple stumbles on the way, he'd rather help people get their foot in the door, so to speak. This is just my impression. Then I feel like the new people looked at this and said, Oh God, we have no idea what to do with this. And so they took the skeleton outline, wrote dialogue on top of it as basically a first or maybe second draft, and then there you go. There's the game. Now, this game did not sell well. Xenosaga Part 2 sold very badly and also received, was almost universally critically blasted at the time. Now, I'm not saying that makes it a bad game. As I said, I'm not willing to say that. But that is very important because it will explain everything about where Episode 3 went. But we'll cover that next week. So, I do like several of the ideas that they came up with for this one. Fighting as the ESs is actually legitimately fun. 
Um, I do like running around and breaking stuff on the terrain as well. But more to the point, boosting and uh, storing, stocking. I can't remember what they call it. I, you know, the, the the option where you can like okay, hold your action and then be able to take multiple actions at once, or boosting to get ahead of another action. That's cool. I like those in concept. The counter boosts kind of made that a little bit aggravating. Maybe I just wasn't using it right. I'm not actually sure about that one. Um, I do also like uh, the usage of events and how events can have different consequence on how you play through a map. Um, I got the very strong impression that the, uh, going back to the whole difficulty curve thing about play, player power progression, I, f I get the very strong impression that they assumed that you'd be basically min-maxing your usage of events in order to get as much of, as you could out of every single battle, and therefore would effectively be riding the yellow line the entire time. I'm not 100% sure if that's true, but that's certainly how it felt to me going through this one. It's also weird because Xenosaga 2 is actually a pretty damn short game. Oh yeah, that's the other thing I wanted to mention here really quick. Um, Xenosaga 2... There's conflicting information about this, that's why I'm hesitating. So I, I don't like say, stating something if I don't know it's some degree of fact. All I can say is with a big asterisk of maybe here is that supposedly Xenosaga 2 and Xenosaga 1 were both supposed to be Xenosaga 1. And then Xenosaga 3 was supposed to be 2, 3, and 4. I don't actually know how true that is. But it is worth noting that a lot of Xenosaga 1 flows almost seemly into 2. It, it follows a lot of the same beats in terms of its story progression. Uh, and the way scenes progress. And 2, in many ways, feels like a conclusion of the events of 1, whereas 3 almost feels like a completely separate entity from the previous 2. I'm not sure what it is. Um, now, that also kind of is relevant to uh, the gameplay, because, so I mentioned the boosting, I mentioned the stalking. Um, the dual techs were very cool. Usually not useful in my experience. Usually the time and the effort and the resources, the ether, would literally be better spent just doing single text rather than dual text. Maybe there's just some combos I didn't notice. Um, I did like the concept of breaking an enemy, even though that concept would be overused in certain other games. <laughs> FF13, excuse me. Um, and the vulnerabilities using which zone and showing where they're going to be vulnerable. I feel like they could have just said certain enemies are weak to certain attacks or have weak spots or whatever. I also like positioning, the fact that you actually have, honest to God, a very minor form of, but legitimate positioning on the, on the battle map. That's cool. I like that. I enjoy it when uh, games give me that option. But the one thing I, there's two things I really do like about Xenosaga 2, gameplay-wise, that they really did well. Uh, well, three things, actually. Sorry. Um, the first is the ability to swap party members in combat. Now, this is a fairly basic concept nowadays, um, but not a lot of games really did this back then. I think FF10 was one of the first games I played that actually had, you know, that ability to in combat say, hang on, there we go. And I like that because not only can you change your tactics based on the circumstance, but you can say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm getting low on such and such. Swap. There we go. Uh, I kind of am glad that I knew in advance that Junior, excuse me, Rubido, would actually be basically doing the last boss by himself, because I made the distinct effort to always have him in the party whenever it was available specifically to level him. I also love the air and the down status effects. It's a cool system, the ability to, in like a turn-based combat thing, be able to knock an enemy into the air or knock them down, makes a lot of sense to me. I'm reminded of a game I recently played on stream, Battletech, where knocking down the enemy 
while it does a little bit of damage in its own right, it was mostly a tactical tool, uh, giving them more vulnerabilities, uh, less evasion, giving you the chance to get called shots, that kind of a thing. I like that option and how that adds a little bit of dynamic. So even though I feel it had some significant issues, I did overall like the combat and gameplay of 2 a little bit better than 1. Now, that being stated, please, please don't jump over me and kill me with sticks. I really didn't like the graphics of 2. Something about the characters, most notably, just struck me as off and weird and wrong throughout most of 2. And for, there are several characters where I kept having to remind myself, oh yeah, that's such and such <laughs> from the first game. Because remember, this occurs just right after the first game. Um, that's like, okay, yeah, that's no, that's actually them. Actually, God, why do they look so weird? I don't know. I didn't quite care for the style of it. I was tempted to call it Final Fantasy VIII-ish, but I can't quite call it that, so I don't know what to call it. Curious if any of you feel the same way. Now, that being said, the initial car chase thing, that was kind of awesome. That was very fun. Um, and I did enjoy the mech combat as the ESs. It did remind me a lot of the Xenogears mech combat and probably for pretty distinct reasons, except a little bit more polished version of that. I don't have much else to say about that. Uh, I also want to say one other thing, though. Keeping in mind that this is almost almost universally the same voice actors in the first game, the voice acting felt nearly universally worse than in the first game. Now, I have spoken many, many, many times when it comes to video game development about voice direction and how incredibly important it is to have good voice direction. Um... I was reading an interview once of a, of a voice actor who's commenting how uh, he was brought back to do the same role again, and he had no idea who the character was or their motivations or anything because he was a professional voice actor who didn't really get invested in the, the particular role that he was voice acting again. He relied on the voice director to tell him, this is your motivation, this is your perspective, this is what happened, to basically put him in character and pull a performance out of him. Otherwise, he was just reading lines in a paper. Unfortunately, it is a very common thing for some, some video games, especially in this era, the PS2 era, to have negligible or actively bad voice directing. And I feel like this game was another example of that. Um, I can't remember what it was. There's a line that Rubido says that, that in particular always strikes me every time I hear it. He's like, it's towards the end. It's right when he's going for the last boss and he's like, I don't think that I should do this, or something like that. Like, he just has this really weird pausing. And the really weird pausing is everywhere in this game. It it feels very unnatural. It literally feels like, I will go do this, oh, and this also. It could just be because the voice director involved was a new voice director and had no idea what they were doing. Maybe they were crushed for time. Maybe this is the first draft. Again, I don't know what, but it kind of lowered my enjoyment of the game as a whole. Which brings me to the story. So I mentioned the mech combat earlier. So there's three things that they really introduce in Xenosaga 2. Xenosaga 1 was a relatively cont contained game. It had some tiny peaks into the overall world. But for the most part, this is just the effort of their tiny little group and their tiny little efforts. Three things, uh, I guess four actually, now that I'm thinking about it, are all, no, it's really just the big three ones, uh, are emphasized and talked about pretty much right off the bat. First of all, as I mentioned, the ESs are introduced, which is the big mecha. You know, the, yeah, we're mecha and we're cool. Um, <laughs> the mechas are also mentioned to be powered by the pieces of anima, which, for those of you not aware, is the pieces of chaos's power that were split off from him by Mary. 
for reasons that were ill-defined at best, but basically had something to do with preventing the world from being destroyed. And by the world, I mean the universe. Still not 100% sure why, why that lines up that way, <laughs> but whatever. Um, so the ESs are introduced, the anima, which I just mentioned was introduced, and the idea of those fundamental pieces of power of the universe are introduced. Uh, the Gnosis have a definitely take a huge step back in priority in the second game, but it's also mentioned that they, as a problem on a galactic scale, are getting much, much worse. 120 systems being lost to the notions. Um, that's bad. But it also helps to emphasize part of the nature of what's going on. Ever since that initial hole that was opened up during the Milchian, or not the Milchian, uh, oh god, I can't think of it, the such-and-such such conflict, which really kick-started most of the events of the games, uh, ever since that incident, that, that hole that was ripped open, thanks to Shion, thanks Shion, um, has been getting worse. And, and the implication is that the notions are spreading and spreading and spreading, and will eventually just, the whole of life and the universe. What's funny, though, is that isn't implied to be the thing that's going to end the universe. That's something else, but we'll get to that next game, because that's not even mentioned in this game. The final thing is the idea of the manipulators, the Machiavellian people behind the scenes going, yes, I don't have a pet cat with me, but, you know, particularly the cat here, yes. Together we will show them all how pitiful they are. But the thing is, I mentioned earlier how a lot of the script feels like a first draft. There are several scenes and lines of dialogue where people flat out say, I want to know who's really behind this, or um, something has been orchestrating all of these events from the get-go, you know. Basically flat out telling the audience that, hey, there's big people behind this, when anybody who's paying attention would already have that implication from the first game, and anybody who's paying attention to this game will have that shoved in their faces anyways, even if you take those scenes out. Um... But we find out a little bit more about uh, Ermos, or am I saying that, Umros? Yeah, they only say it like five times in the game. Ah, the religious group. And they talk about Utik more. And they mention how Utik, which was implied to be just, oh, they're just pathetic and nothing. Uh, you know, the guys who are the big in issues in the first game are basically just pawns of some larger power. And it's implied throughout the course of this game that the religious order is the one actually behind it. This is the first time we meet the patriarch, or the pope, if you're playing the Japanese version of this game. I don't actually remember his name. He was very immemorable. Which I bring up because... This is probably one of the very clever, few clever things they do in Xenozaga 2, in my opinion. They make it so that Wilhelm, who we've already seen, I remind you, is... A non-entity has very, very little presence in the game. But they also do the same general thing with the Patriarch. And the Patriarch is shown to be the superior, not only of, of the Papacy, uh, the Ormus, or whatever they're called, but also the Migrant Fleet, and, of course, the individual, Margulis, the guy who we've been seeing for quite some time in the first game. So he's established to be the, the big boss. And in many ways, he comes across as the guy who is supposed to be the one behind it all. And let's be honest, most people playing a Japanese RPG in this era are probably expecting the religious figure to be the bad guy. So we look at this guy like, yep, he's the one behind everything. He is, of course, a red herring, and it's actually, in my opinion, very well done, because almost everything about the entire game sets him up to be the guy 
like the guy who has been behind all of this crap in the first game and in the second game, and the one who's been pulling the strings this entire time, and he even has his stated goal, I want to you know, purify the, the galaxy, the, I keep saying the world, purify the galaxy, purify the universe, I want to, to purge the, the wrong humans and the notions, and I will use this ultimate power, which I have claimed to do it, and, and then he gets erased by the testaments. This is also the first time we really see the Testaments. And they actually call them that, flat-out Testaments, so we have that word now. Uh, we don't know much about them. We know Purple's there. Was it Virgil? I think it was Virgil. Uh, we know Purple's there. We're not sure what's going on with Red. We, we know Black is named Voyager, but unfortunately this game does, game does almost nothing to establish what's going on with Voyager. Now, interestingly enough, I could be misremembering this, but I don't. I think they don't spend a lot of time and effort in the three games really establishing what's going on with Voyager or why uh, Ziggy has such an issue with him. I want to comment on that very briefly, because Voyager is, well, in my opinion, he's not a very engaging character. Ziggy, by contrast, is someone I really like. This is, this is another good game for Ziggy, by the way. He continues his slow character development of wanting to live more, willingness to keep surviving for the sake of Momo and for Julie. Julie gets uh, some good scenes in this one, too. She finally becomes a major character. But I bring this up because the way it's laid out is... Let's rewind a second. I mentioned the types of death, and or rather afterlife, consequences of death in this setting. So we've got, you can turn into a pillar of salt. I know that's not quite death, but hear me out. Turn into a pillar of salt, you turn into a gnosis, um, you're cool, and then you sublimate into the collective unconscious. I will freely admit that there's some crossover across some of these, but that's the general idea of what can happen to you when you die. Obvious reference to Gnosticism and the three consequences of Gnosticism are obvious. I'm not even going to cover that. But I bring this up because one of the things that's emphasized is that they need, uh, Wilhelm needs very specific type of people to become his testaments. He needs two predominant qualities in these people. One, they have to be people who will, uh, I forget what they phrase it as, but basically the third group, the people who do not... If, if a notion grabs you, if a gnosis grabs you, and you do not turn into a pillar of salt, and you do not turn into a gnosis, so you're the third category of person, someone who is willing to ascend or whatever, that's the kind of person he needs. He needs those kind of people who are willing to basically, to put this into more basic terms, people who can maintain their sense of self even after their soul, spirit, whatever you want to call it, has been removed from their body. That's very important because all the testaments are dead. Every one of them has already died in the material plane, and now they are re-manifesting in the material plane from the spirit plane, from the imaginary number domain. Now, so they need to be someone who still retains that sense of self without turning into a gnosis. So they have to hit that specific balance. And, now this one's more my opinion, they need to be someone who's messed up in the head. I say that very casually, but I mean it very literally. They need to be someone who, when told the full extent of Wilhelm's plans and what he's going to do and why he's going to do it, their response is going to be, okay, rather than, now, or, that's insane, or, God, what's wrong with you, right? He needs people who are damaged who are then willing to accept the horrors of what he is presenting because the sane mind, in my blunt opinion, cannot look at what Wilhelm's saying and not try to oppose it. 
Thus, we have a little bit more insight into each of these testaments based on this presentation. It also helps to explain how their powers work. It would be more accurate to say they don't really have powers in any fundamental sense. As was stated earlier, uh, I think this is actually in the first game. I'm getting a little mixed up now because I've been blazing through these games for the, over the weekend. But it's stated that you know the physics don't apply to us the same way because they're basically not even there. They are effectively manifestations of something that exists on another plane of existence. Now that's not quite right, but you get my point. They're spirits. They're ghosts. I wonder how much crossover there was between the idea of nobody's over in Kingdom Hearts and this. I always wonder about that sometimes. Anyways, whew. now I bring this all up because this relates to Ziggy. Ziggy was someone who was being cultivated to be this perfect owner. Apparently he was someone who met the qualifications. Uh, we know that Wilhelm has all of the realians. Well, I shouldn't say realians. A portion of the realians have the additional software where they're scanning and identifying and trying to figure out who would be good candidates for, um, for this third category of person to become testaments. And we know Ziggy qualified. So that's done. We just need to put him into a state where he's willing to do this. And so his life is basically ruined by Voyager. And Voyager's like, yes, and now you have only two choices. And then Ziggy shot himself in the head. And that is so very Ziggy, isn't it? And I think that's part of why I like him. He was handed a sadistic choice, and he shot himself in the face. I, I don't know how to properly explain how much that amuses me. It's, it's strange, I know. And I'm not trying to be morbid or anything like that. It just kind of speaks to his personality. Hmm, you're trying to make me do some horrible thing or accept some horrible fate. Nope. <laughs> like, he just doesn't do those kind of compromises. But again, he's not the person who's like, No, I'll never do evil. No, he doesn't have that idealism about that. Just that sort of... Yeah, yeah no. This is a Tuesday. I also have to admit that... Uh, so I mentioned earlier, I'm not a huge fan of the music of Xenosaga 1 and 2. Please don't crucify me, it's just not my thing. But I am very much not a fan of the music direction of Xenosaga 2. There's a very touching scene between Julie and uh, Ziggy, where they're talking about the horrors they've gone through, losing a child, and how he committed suicide, and how she thinks maybe she should have committed suicide. And the music during that section is... Should have killed myself. I mean, it's not the only scene like that. It's just the one that really stuck out in my memory as just being discordant. I'm really not sure what they were thinking with a lot of these scenes. But anyways, anyways. So, this is also the... Uh, the episode where Jin is introduced. Now, I know that's not actually true. Jin was actually in like a two-minute cameo in the first game. But Jin is formally made into a character and actually has a great deal to do with the story in this game. Two things that come to mind about Jin. I just want to comment really quick. First of all, I mentioned earlier that a lot of the dialogue in this game feels very blunt, very first drafty. There's a scene where he talks to Chaos, and he says, it's strange talking... This is paraphrased. It's strange talking to you. It's like... You're hundreds of years old, but oh, that can't be right. There's a different, you know, you're just different than the rest of us. And hmm, I don't know. It feels like the 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 the, the authors literally couldn't think of what to say, so they just said, "Here, let's just say this, and then the audience will get it." Right? <laughs> um, whoops. 
Sorry about that. I didn't mean to screw up the background there. That's actually my fault. Apologies. Um, but what I, I do like, Jin, oh yeah, Sellers has more presentation in this game as well, although he's still mostly a background character. We'll be talking about Sellers more in the third game. Um, I mentioned in the last game that Margulis served as a good counterpart to both Ziggy and Chernikov, but I, I, I kind of stopped myself. I don't know if you, you watched that and you remembered that, but you might have noticed I was just kind of like, uh, and that's it, those two. Because the third person he has a counterpart to is Jin. And I mean, it's, this is such an obvious one. The two are made in a classic form, fashion. It's very, very uh, standard, very cliche, if you will. But I like its execution here. It's probably one of the few character dynamics I really enjoy. Um, Jin uses the katana. Uh, Margulis uses this big old double-bladed broadsword. Um, Jin fights very precise, very calculated. When Margulis gets into combat, he is this massive berserker, just bam, very offensive based. Uh, most of Margulis's attacks are very melee focused, as in like a brawler, a berserker. Whereas most of Jin's attacks favor ether attacks. In other words, he's more of a mage. At first, I was going to say that Jin reminds me a great deal of your archetypal samurai, but the more I think about it, the more I think the better word for him is the Ronin. Now, yes, I know a Ronin is just a samurai without a lord, but that so perfectly describes him, in my opinion. By contrast, Margulis is the samurai lord, or, well, actually, I'm, I'm not sure it's accurate to call him samurai, but he's definitely leaning more in that direction. He's the person who comes across as someone who is in control of himself except when it comes to combat. Whereas Jin is someone who, as a result of being detached from whatever he believes or whatever he thinks, he walks more of a middle road. I also want to mention one other thing while I'm on the topic. Uh, this will also come up in Episode 3. But have you ever noticed that Margulis is pretty much always the one giving orders? Now, I know that sounds like a weird comment, but in Episode 1, he was seen reporting to people above him. And in Episode 2, he literally bends knee to the, to the Patriarch, to the Pope. But in both cases, he owes no particular fealty to those people. Well, you could argue that he owes fealty to Heinlein, but you get my point. He's always the kind of person who is in charge of any given situation he's in, and I feel like that's just his personality. That's, that's why I call, I call him a samurai lord, is the idea of someone who, without even necessarily meaning to, with no particular predilection towards power hungriness or anything like that, he just leads because it's so natural for him. He knows what we need to do, and we're going to do it. Unfortunately or otherwise, Margulis takes quite a bit of a backstage in this game. Most of what he has to do has to do with establishing the Patriarch, and then, well, the Patriarch being like, Wait, you turned against me? No, that's okay, I'll just get the Omega. Oh, God. Uh. <laughs> Sorry, I make fun because he's so wonderfully pathetic. I, uh... uh so this is also the game... So I mentioned they start really establishing some stuff. I actually met, I missed one step because I forgot they didn't really bring up Udu in, in the first game. They didn't mention it a few times, but this game is just Udu, 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 Udu. Is this a good time to mention that I feel like a lot of the backstory flashback exposition is just kind of clunky in this game? I don't mean to keep speaking ill of this game. Again, I'm not really willing to call this a bad game, because I don't think it is. I've played so much worse than this, it's not even funny. But it feels like this is a bit more of an amateurish game. 
which again goes back to my earlier theory on the matter. Because a lot of the times, rather than having a flashback or a narrative section that explains what happened in the past flowing naturally from events, instead it's just kind of like, uh, da -da 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 -da. do you remember 14 years ago when this happened? You know, it just conk, just like someone just, uh, just, just really lunges side to side. Oh, I shouldn't do that. It's making me dizzy. <laughs> now, so Udu is well-established. Well, I shouldn't say well-established. Udu is mentioned, and we get the idea that Udu is integrally tied up to all of the major plot threads in this series, which is true. Udu is absolutely involved in all this stuff. But you'll notice we don't get a lot of actual exposition about what Udu really is or why Udu really is. I mean, Abel's arc only shows up right at the end of this game, for God's sakes, so we don't even know any of that crap yet. Um, I do find it interesting also that the other one very intricately tied in with Udu, Yuriev, or Yuriev? Yuriev? I think that's how you pronounce that. They only say his name, like, once, uh, maybe twice in this game. He's uh, He also finally brings himself to the front stage. And that's also funny to me, considering that he's probably the second most person responsible for all the events of the entire series, only behind Wilhelm himself. <laughs> but you notice I'm just kind of racing through moments here, because I don't have a lot to say about a lot of the specifics. Um, there's a lot of backstory dump about the URTVs. We see a lot about Albedo and Rubido. A little bit about Negrido, just a little bit about him. But what I find really weird about this is that I don't have a lot to say about either of them that I haven't already said. Now, if you're paying attention, I didn't even bring up Junior in the previous rumination, even though he was a fairly large character in the first game. But that was because his role, character-wise, there was nothing. I had nothing to discuss. I didn't feel like there was anything worth mentioning with regards to Rubido in the first game. He was a kid. He was mentioned as being older than he looks. They flat out state, you know, the older man states, you're older than me, act like it, right? That was in the first game. He, he is mentioned as having a connection to Albedo. I mentioned that. And he's obviously stronger than he appears to be. But that's it. It was the barest hints of a character. This game drops a massive book of exposition about Rubido on our face. Sadly, I still don't feel like I have a lot to say about him. Now, I do have something to say about, but I just don't have much to discuss. This isn't a character I feel that has a lot of depth to him. Please forgive me for that opinion. But to me, Rubido and Albedo are both best analyzed side by side. Now, I've already talked about Albedo in the previous film, or the previous video, the one that went out last week. To me, Rubido feels like the exact same, let's call him the formula that Albedo is, except expressed in a different variant. I've talked, of course, about the idea of variants, about the preference, and about how this is such a significant aspect of the Zenosaga franchise. But in this case, what I mean by this is neither Albedo nor Rubido are, let's call them normal. Neither of them are normal. Now, obviously, what is normal, right? I mean, that's kind of a fallacy just to even acknowledge the existence of such a thing. But it's true. Neither of them really literally exists in the same way as anyone else around them. They're not even the same as the other URTVs. They are completely segregate from everything. So each of them kind of starts to define their lives. And I know this is a very strange analogy, but please hear me out. A normal, normal person 
would define their life by thousands of little brush strokes, drawing a couple of hills, and here's a tree, and happy tree, and we've got the sun shining here, you know, thousands of brush strokes painting a picture that forms the amalgamate composite that they are. Rubido and Albedo have, like, lines that are actually blocks being put on the paper, like literally a different dimension. They're not painted on the picture at all. They're dropping blocks of wood on the paper in order to form the picture that is their personality. That's how different they are from everything else around them. And it's also very broad and very assumptive. Both of them use basic points of either information or concepts in order to establish broad broad uh, personality traits, basically smashing down any possibility of subtlety or nuance in the character, but not in a bad way, so much as a way that helps to inform how alien they are. God, I hope I'm making some sense. This, this series is so weird to analyze. <laughs> so Albedo. Probably my favorite scene to help establish this is the scene where Albedo says, well, he's just got to regenerate. What do you mean he's got to regenerate? Well, yeah, like this, and he blows his head off. And then, zunk! Well, we don't regenerate. Huh? One of those blocks in his paper was the regeneration. When you believe that everyone can regenerate fully and completely just like you can, I mean, can you imagine what that would do to your psyche as you're developing? Think about that for a moment. What consequence is there from killing someone or brutally beating someone? Well, none, because, okay, they're back to normal. We're cool, right? That's nothing. That's inconsequential. But then what's also interesting is that the very next thing he finds out is that nobody else has that. And now his definition, which is it's the same block of wood on the paper, but now it's flipped or tipped over or whatever analogy you want to use here because now that same point is defining basically the exact opposite thing. Congratulations, you're the only one like that. And the first thing he does is he freaks out about being left alone. Keep in mind, Albedo has not been presented as someone who really is particularly close to his two brothers or his sister. Citrine is basically a non-character in this game. That's why I'm not even going to bring her up other than what I just did. But throughout the whole game, even unto his death, he, he flat out admits that for all of his quirks and personality and whatever, he never really cared for them in the same way that we would say we care for a good friend. Instead, it would be more accurate to say that Albedo defined himself by Rubido and Negrido. Right? So they are important to him, but not in the sense that he cares about them. You with me? So in other words, the idea that these pillars of his life are going to be removed from it someday is a thought that he just had difficulty bearing. And we see a lot of Albedo develop as a kid, and we see just how messed up he was, you know, again, just a little bit offset of everyone else, even when he was still developed, before he encountered the Udu wave and was like, what? <laughs> um, I could talk about how Udu messes people up, but honestly, I think that discussion is better saved for the third game. Because we don't even know yet that Yuriev has encountered the Udo wave, just to name one example of that. Or Voyager, for that matter. Anyways, uh, so I also, one of the things, so that's Albedo. Now, Rubido, he does a similar thing, but slightly more nuanced. Rubido tends to look at things and uh, 
God, I can. Uh, this is going to sound like the weirdest analogy, but I can visually picture it. Like a normal person, again, would look at someone, and there would be like hundreds of little labels on that person, right? Um, maybe not hundreds, but at least dozens, right? You know, label, 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 label. Rubido looks at someone and he sees like one label, like an, a whole person is defined by this one thing, and that what that thing is is their relation to him exactly what kind of dynamic exists between him and them. Uh, this is how he defined his existence to Sakura. This is how he divined his presentation around Momo. This is how he interacts around most of the crew, around most of his sisters. You know, he is, in almost every one of his significant character uh, interactions with everyone else, there's just this box. Like, you could, if, if you were to put on the Rubido goggles, you could just see the the labels covering up the faces and bodies of the people he's looking at, and that's all he presents himself as, um, which I find fascinating, because, again, it's the same general thing Albedo was doing, just presented differently. Now, the other difference, though, is that Rubido is a coward, whereas Albedo is afraid, and those are very different perspectives. Um, to be a coward is to be someone who cannot take something and therefore must try to get away from it and not deal with it. To be afraid is to be someone who is who is actively in the moment of being, uh, ha having whatever that is put upon you, and doing everything in your power to defeat or solve that fear. Now, I know this isn't quite how it defined it, but that's what I mean is going on between Rubido and Albedo. So, Rubido is almost consistently a coward throughout the entire game. He's the only one who has any kind of real character development in this game because he is the one who finally decides to push back to go from being a coward to being afraid when he decides to go and confront Albedo by himself to say, I am going to do something about this thing that causes me this distress. I'm no longer going to simply remove myself from the scenario. Now, the other thing I want to mention about his cowardice, though, he also, he has the advantage of never linking up with Udu. So as a consequence, he never saw things that would probably drive most people mad. <laughs> Again, we'll talk more about that next game. But that's relevant to him because that means he had the chance to develop basically a form of droid effect. We see in Rubido, even though he defines someone as valuable or asset or friend, that that friendship develops a more natural and real emotion within him to the point where he genuinely cares. About Momo is probably the most obvious example. But one of my favorite little side examples is how much he has grown to care about Albedo despite everything. Or perhaps he always has cared about Albedo and has only recently understood what caring really means and therefore now can understand a new concept, loss. I'm not 100% sure. Yes, I know he lost Sakura before, but if, if I'm right about this theory, the idea is that he wasn't quite emotionally mature enough at that time to fully cognate what loss is, and now, thanks to the events of the game, he has reached that point, and now he's losing someone else. This is why he takes Albedo's death so hard. Despite everything, he is losing one of those pillars of his life. At least until he comes back as a testament. Anyways, <clears throat> Um, I like Julie in this. She, she serves in my mind as a counterpoint to Wilhelm, and I know that sounds really weird, 
because Wilhelm is the manipulator who's behind freaking everything, is literally in charge of almost every major organization in the galaxy, and has been doing this an unknown period of times, so we don't even know. Uh, again, we'll really discuss Wilhelm next game when he really comes into the fore. But my point is, Wilhelm... Uh, this is, it can be debated how true this is, but I've always got the impression that Wilhelm was the person who wanted the children, humanity, to come up with their own solution. And so he would challenge them to do it, but he would always presume that they would fail, and he would make the choice for them. Now, by contrast, Julie has had that mentality before, but when it comes to her second daughter, Momo, when it gets to the point where she has to choose for her, she finds that she can't. She's on the verge of wiping out her daughter's life, and she can't quite bring herself to. And I really like that scene, because there's been build-up to it. There's been build-up to it since the first game, and we get the impression that Julie has just started to begin accepting the idea of Momo being her child. Like She's not there yet. The caring isn't there yet. That takes the rest of the game to really start developing. But she's just at the step of, okay, maybe I should start accepting her as that, you know. And it's also funny because she initially starts thinking of her as just Sakura, Sakura 2.0, and it takes her, you know, the rest of the game and her interactions with Ziggy to finally understand, okay, no, hang on, hang on. <laughs> she's her own person. I shouldn't think of her as Sakura 2.0. I should think of her as Momo. But in that moment, she can't quite bring herself to kill her. And I don't blame her. That makes perfect sense. But in its own right, right, what ends up happening is she effectively turns over the choice to Momo. She doesn't quite do so consciously and willingly. But that is effectively what happens. Momo is then the one who decides, I will self-terminate to save you. Now, to share this parallel a bit further, like to, to expand it a little bit to get what I'm getting across, imagine for a moment if humanity had decided of their own accord to willingly start the eternal recurrence and reset reality and, and start up a new cycle in order to try and save the universe. And Wilhelm was the one who let them make that choice. That's kind of the rough equivalent of what we're happening here. But I find that funny in its own right because, of course, I don't think Wilhelm would ever willingly make such an opportunity at least, not the Wilhelm we know. But again, I want to say more about him for later. Um, look at my notes here. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> a, few, a couple quick notes here. So, first of all, uh, I mentioned in my last video, and I'm sure I will get dozens of comments about it, because obviously I record these well in advance, so I won't even see your guys' comments for like a month. But I'm sure plenty of people are like, what are you talking about? It was obviously Kevin operating under Wilhelm's orders that activated Cosmos back in the first game. So that also helps to explain why Cosmos activates in this game out of turn, even though she literally doesn't even have her core in her, in order to go and assist uh, Shion on Wilhelm's orders. Obviously, Wilhelm has a vested interest in keeping Shion and, and Cosmos together since kind of needs the, the power energy transfer thing to make Cosmos into the Mary Magdalene that she needs to be in order to start the currents and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that all makes sense. We also see a little bit more of Kevin in this game, both before and after. What I find funniest is if you're paying attention, and admittedly, I wouldn't notice this without the advantage of hindsight. I'll admit that. 
But if you're paying attention, all the flashbacks about Kevin, back before the accident, the, the accident, um, all of those portray him as someone very childish. Do you notice that? Like, he's portrayed in an innocent light. It's not like he comes across as villainous. But there's no maturity to him. And I find that interesting because that will very much be relevant in the future. So that's some nice foreshadowing there. Or, I suppose, retroactive foreshadowing. You know, the kind of thing you only notice the second time. The Babylon 5 effect, as I like to call it. I need to add that, Lorium. Um, I mentioned Yuriev. I don't really have much to say about him yet. He's basically a non-character. Um, he's horribly evil. Moving on. Um, Wilhelm and Chaos have a couple of interesting scenes together. And we kind of see that there's a little bit more going on with both of them. And that Chaos has decided to, to put it into weird terms, to join the board. Like Wilhelm has been playing chess by himself, and now Chaos has finally sat down at the opposite end of the table, is the impression of the way that I got, they do that. Chaos also says a lot of stuff in this game that clearly indicates he knows a lot more about what's going on than he, the, than he presents himself. And that was, that's been true since the first game, so that's not really anything new. But that interaction between him and Wilhelm is very important because to me that shows the level of power at which he's playing. That he is not one of those queens ordering around one of those pawns, nor is he one of the flecks of dust ordering around the other flecks of dust. No, he's the person sitting at the board of chess alongside Wilhelm. And I don't actually have much else to add about that. I'm looking at my notes here. I guess that's it. I don't really have much else to talk about. Actually, I do have one last thing to say. Is it just me or is the final boss against Albedo kind of irritating? <laughs> right? You know? Yes, yes, go on. Ah. Kill me more, kill me more. Just, wow, dude, shut up. Anyways, thank you all for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed. The next one's going to be the long one. The next one's the one I'm really dreading. Um, so I'm going to do my best next week, and I hope you'll see me there next time. <laughs>